Hello, and welcome to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Uh, Fellowship Baptist Church is located in Clark Lake, Michigan, and is led by Pastor Daniel White. Uh, Today we're going to be joining Pastor White as he continues his series on the family. So let's get out our Bibles and get ready to join Pastor White as he teaches us about God's plan for home and the family. Marriage. The foundation of any society. The very first institution that God established. And so you know there's going to be an all-out attack upon the family as there was from the beginning. And so tonight we want to look at the divorce and remarriage issue. And my heart goes out to those who have been touched with divorce. The pain, the sorrow, the heartache that goes along with all of that. But that being the case doesn't mean that we should not deal with this issue. We need to deal with it. We need to wrestle it through. We need to look at it from a biblical perspective, not from our own vantage point, but from God's point of view. That's wisdom. And so... This is going to be part one. Next week, I'll do part two. You say, well, didn't we deal with this last week? Well, we dealt last week with the teachings of Jesus as it applies to the permanency of marriage. Now, what I'm going to do tonight by way of review is kind of blend some of the teaching that we looked at last week of Jesus into our lesson here tonight. I really wish everyone was here every single time, but it just doesn't happen that way. And so I think by doing that, at least we'll catch you up to where uh, you need to be to understand this issue from God's perspective. So what does the Bible say about this issue of divorce and remarriage? Heavenly Father, as we come before you here this evening, I pray you would give us a real clarity of thought. I pray that Satan would be bound. I understand that feelings are tender, especially if one's life has been touched by divorce and then perhaps remarriage. And so, Father, I pray that your blessed Holy Spirit would do his work in our lives. And I especially pray for our young people here that they would understand what your design for marriage is. And, Father, that they would hold to a biblical perspective of marriage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The truth is, this one verse should settle the issue. This was part of the teachings of Jesus that we looked at last week. For this cause shall the man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife... And the twain shall be what? One flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain. This is a great mystery, the Bible says. They are no more twain, but one flesh. Wherefore, or what therefore God hath joined together, and let's read that last statement together, let no man put asunder. And so Jesus, referring all the way back to God's design for marriage in the book of Genesis. That should settle the issue, but it never does. So there is a theological controversy within the church. I did make this statement last week. I am one of the very few that I know that are in the ministry today that are pastors that hold to the permanency of marriage. Most most of my pastor friends, I would say almost all of my pastor friends that I am close to believe in what's called the exception clause, that there are exceptions for divorce and remarriage. We're going to look at that. We mentioned it last week, but we're going to look at that in detail tonight. So I'm prefacing my message by saying this. Most pastors would disagree with my theological position, all right? But they have a right to be wrong. It's okay. But you know, the Bible says, let every man be persuaded in his own mind. This is an issue that the Lord has persuaded me over. I have a deeply held conviction 
as it comes to marriage, and I do believe it is till death do us part, not till divorce do us part. But there is a controversy. People do argue over about the permanency of marriage. I heard this quote years ago. I believe it was Bill Gothard. was the first one I heard make this statement. I absolutely agree with Bill. He said, a man's morality will often determine his theology. Let me say that again. A man's morality will often determine his theology. You say, what do you mean by that, pastor? Here's an example. This is one pastor who admitted that the overwhelming number of divorced people in his fellowship and the fact that his daughter went through divorce and was remarried caused him to stop, pause, and then reconsider his whole position on the permanency of marriage, and then he changed. Now, let me ask you a question. Did God's word change? All right. What changed this pastor's mind? Situational ethics. Okay. The situation in his church and in his home caused him to change his ethics in this area, going back to that original quote that we have there. Listen, the church must never, ever give in to the temptation to develop a theology that is compatible with society. What is the church doing today? The church is developing a theology that's compatible with society in the area of homosexual marriage. And we see church after church after church after church and denominations now arguing and debating this, this whole... Listen, this shouldn't even be up for debate. Same-sex marriage? Really? God's Word does not change. It is our absolute authority, and we should not change either, even if society changes. The church must not interpret the scriptures to justify its own preconceived conclusions or lifestyle. We don't take the scriptures and conform them to our lifestyle. We should be conforming our lifestyle to the scriptures. Thank you. I had to pull that one out of you. The church must place the clear teachings of scripture Jesus' words. This isn't the way it was. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's see how God designed marriage to be. So the church must place the clear teachings of Scripture above the opinions, the writings, and the teachings of men. That is what has to supersede the. You can read all kinds of literature that will take the Scriptures and, in my opinion, twist the Scriptures to match the theology that they want in order to justify their actions. We must take the Scriptures. So we're going to look at several questions that arise in the next two weeks over this whole issue of divorce and remarriage. This is a point that cannot be argued. Marriage is permanent between a man and a woman and was not to be put apart. That's, that is such a clear, clear teaching to Scripture. This was God's original design going all the way back to the book of Genesis. So any discussion on marriage has to begin with the clear teachings of Scripture that God designed marriage to be what? Permanent. Say that with me. What? Permanent. Not to be put apart. God's original pattern for marriage is that we are to leave and we are to what? We are to cleave. Last week we looked at that word cleave, and here's some of the meanings that emerge from that Hebrew word, to adhere, to abide, to abide fast by, to be joined together. It means to be cemented, to be cemented, to be stuck like glue, to be welded together so that it cannot be separated without damage to both. The two become what? If the two become one and you try to separate that, damage is going to occur. Hello. Amen. 
At the point of marriage, God declares that a man and woman are permanently united together as one flesh. Okay? These are bullet points that I put up there that really cannot be argued or cannot be interpreted any other way. It's clear. So let me ask you a question. Does the Bible ever contradict itself? If the Bible establishes a clear teaching, then the Bible would never, ever stand in contradiction to itself and that teaching. So there's no question that God intended marriage to be permanent, to be a lifelong relationship. It's the vow that every married couple, well, I shouldn't say that, they've rewritten the vows now. But almost every married couple takes. Till death do us part. We make that vow. So we understand that. So <clears throat> it's a commitment. I, I, I kind of like this when I came across it. You know, you got a couple falling in love and then you have them getting married and then you have them growing old together. And then what just happened is mom lost her husband. And then one day it'll be both of us. This is how God designed it to be. That's why, listen to me young people, you better do it right from the beginning. This is one area that you do not want to make a mistake in. That's why I just wish all of our young people were here, you know, throughout that whole courtship series and the engagement and on into this one right now. <clears throat> so the Pharisees came. Remember, the Pharisees were always trying to trip Jesus up, trying to entangle him and trap him in his uh, teachings. And so they came to him and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Now notice this uh, statement right here. What does it say? Tempting him. All right. We're going to bring him this hard theological, <laughs> like they're bringing the author of Scripture something hard, you know. But this hard theological question, and we're going to try to really trip him up and see what position that he's going to hold so that we can attack him in this area of marriage. Here's Jesus teaching in Mark chapter 10. We looked at this last week. So they asked him a question. He answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Well, look at Moses' bill of divorcement tonight. Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away, to, to get rid of her, to divorce her. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your hearts. Now we're going to look at Moses' law and God's law tonight. Which is a higher law? <laughs> okay, that's obvious. Thank you. For the hardness of your hearts, he wrote this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall man leave his father and mother, shall cleave, we looked at that word, be permanently stuck to his wife, and the twain shall be one flesh. So they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God had joined together, that no man put asunder. And in the house of his disciples, ask him again the same matter. They, they couldn't process this, and we're going to find out why, because Jesus didn't hold either school of opinion when it came to what was accepted during that day. Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her and a woman, and if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. So if there's a divorce and there's a remarriage, then there is what? There's adultery. God said it's an adulterous relationship until that thing is confessed and brought under the blood. So Jesus affirmed God's plan of marriage by taking them all the way back to the statement that is made there in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, and you can see the verse. He further emphasized the permanency of marriage when he said, what well, God had joined together that no man put asunder. Now, should have ended the debate. The apostles also held to the permanency of marriage. They didn't teach something contrary to what the Lord Jesus taught, but they upheld a very high standard of the permanency of marriage in their writings. Paul set forth a general principle, and he said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And unto the married I command yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain what? Unmarried. Unmarried 
or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. So if a separation does take place, what's the ultimate goal? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. All right. Sometimes it happens, but the goal there is to get them reconciled. Or what's the other option? Yeah, that's people don't like that. Is this a hard saying? When Jesus threw down some hard sayings there in John chapter 6, I believe it was, it said many of his disciples walked with him no more. Actually, Jesus said to his disciples, not all men can receive this teaching. They would just reject it. The principle is not based upon the spiritual condition of another person's mate. I've had people say to me, well, you know... um, when we got married, I was a believer and he was an unbeliever, so it was an illegitimate marriage and wasn't recognized by the Lord, so we have permission to divorce. Not. Okay? Has nothing to do with the spiritual condition of the mate. Notice what it says here. If any brother hath a wife that what? Believeth not. So he's a brother, she is not. Well, sister. Okay? And she be pleased or willing to dwell with him, let him not put her away. So just because there's an unequal yoke, once you're married, you're what? You're married, whether he's a believer, an unbeliever, or vice versa. Okay? And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, if he be pleased or willing to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So just because it's an unequal yoke doesn't mean that you... Dissolve the marriage. Paul further explained that only the death, only the death of the partner is what dissolves the permanency of the one flesh relationship in the eyes of God. Notice he said this in two passages of Scripture. One in Romans chapter 7, the other in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to read them both. Know ye not. Paul had a way of throwing that out there on several different occasions, like, Don't you know this? Okay. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Now what law is he talking about? It's talking about God's law. Is he talking about Moses' law? Is he talking about man's law? No, he's talking about God's law as it applies to marriage. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law, God's law, to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, here it comes again. Same thing Jesus taught. She shall be called a what? An adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. We kind of made a little joke last week. Uh, Divorce is not permissible, but murder may be. Okay? (laughs) Then in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says this, The wife is bound by law as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. And then he qualifies this only what? Only in the Lord. What does that mean? Only another believer. So if your husband or wife dies, you can remarry. But if you're a Christian, you need to marry a Christian. Uh, Should I say you need to marry a Christian who's on the same page, going in the same direction? Okay. So God states that marriage is a covenant relationship here in Malachi chapter 2. I believe we touched on this a little bit last week, so I'm not going to take time to read the whole passage here. But this is where God clearly states that marriage is a covenant. Now, what is the difference between a contract, which that's what most most people see marriage as a contract. What's the difference between a contract and a covenant? Okay, a contract can be broken by mutual consent. A covenant, what? A covenant cannot. All right, that's the difference. Covenant cannot be broken contracts can. And then he makes this statement down here at the end. We'll come back to Malachi here a little bit later and highlight some other verses. But then he says this, he hateth putting away. What is putting away? Divorce. Divorce. Okay. 
I, I, just, I gotta ask you. Would God permit something that he says he hates? That makes absolutely no sense. No sense whatsoever. So marriage is a covenant relationship, not a private contract. Now, what we're going to do from this point on is we're going to look at some of the passages that are used by those who would want to justify the divorce and remarriage. Because there are passages of scriptures that they use. We're going to look at a couple tonight, and then next week we're going to come back and look at the others. Okay? We're going to look at every single one that's used today to justify the divorce and remarriage issue. The exception clause. This is the big one. Jesus said, except it be for fornication. We're going to really dig into that here this evening. We kind of scratched the surface of it last week. We're really going to get into it here tonight. But I say unto you that whosoever put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. So does it appear that there is grounds for divorce in this verse? Yes or no? Yes. It appears like there is grounds for divorce. Now, Jesus just said that there wasn't. He just took them back to Genesis just prior to this. But now he throws this, except it be for fornication. Again, we're going to get to this and really dig into it here in just a little bit. So hang on. Now he says this in Matthew 19, verse 9. I say unto you, whosoever put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. So there we have the exception clause. Now this is very important. Very, very important in interpreting this passage of Scripture. Matthew is the only gospel writer the only gospel writer that records this, quote, exception clause. Who was Matthew writing his letter to? To the Jews. So that was the gospel to the Jews, all right? And so the Jews were very much aware of what was known as the betrothal laws. Now, the word betrothal means engagement. Now, their engagement in the Jewish practice, their engagement is much different than ours. Ours is, you know, will you marry me and here's a ring and, you know, if we want to break it off later on, really not big a whoop, okay? When you entered into a betrothal relationship, all right, there was contract signed by both sets of parents. There was a betrothal ceremony that took place. And the only way, the only way that that betrothal could be broken is if one or the other were unfaithful to each other during that time. It was called the betrothal laws. Now here's something also very interesting in the Gospel writers. Mark and Luke, in their parallel accounts of the same passage, give no reference whatsoever to the exception clause. It's not there. So who's the only gospel writer that mentions it? Matthew. Matthew. Who is he writing to? The Jews. Mark is writing to the Gentiles that had no concept of betrothal laws. So that would make no sense to them what Jesus said. Luke is the only Gentile writer of all the scriptures. So Mark had a Gentile audience who, under, uh, who had no understanding of betrothal laws. Luke was the only Gentile writer of any of the books of the Bible. So they did not, are you still with me? They did not address the betrothal issue like Matthew addressed it because their readers wouldn't understand it. Now here's what Mark said. Notice there's no exception clause here. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain but one flesh. But therefore God had joined together that no man put asunder. 
and in the house of the disciples ask him again the same matter. Now, why did they ask him again to clarify that? We'll get to it. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Any, any reference to the exception clause? None. Why? Because the Gentiles had no understanding of, for, of the fornication that could take place during betrothal, which would nullify that contract. Luke, whosoever putteth away his wife and marry another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that to put away uh, from her husband committeth adultery. No reference to the exception clause. Now, let me ask you a question. Don't you think that's significant? God didn't just leave that out for no reason. Now let's talk about some of the epistles. Those are the gospels. What about the epistles? The Apostle Paul never spoke about an exception clause when he dealt with the divorce and remarriage issue. No mention of it whatsoever. This is what he said. The law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth, for the woman which hath a husband is what? Bound. How long is she bound? How long? Until death. Same thing there, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 through verse 40. The wife is bound by law as long as her husband liveth. Now, when you take the word fornication, how many words is that? One word. When you take one word, listen to me, church, and you build an entire doctrine on one word, I'm here to tell you that's, that's a dangerous way to interpret Scripture. That's not how you do it. You take the whole of what the Bible teaches, not just focus on one word. So there's great danger in looking at that exception clause rather than the clear teachings that Jesus was trying to bring forth, which was the permanency of the marriage covenant. The sweet Pharisees. Notice exception clause was not part of Jesus' original answer. We've read this how many times? Okay. Now, should his original answer have been enough? Hello, are you all here? Then, then talk to me here so I know you're alive. Okay. Should his original answer have been enough? All right. They're pushing him. What was their motivation by pushing him and not being satisfied with his original answer. They're trying to trip him up. You've got to understand that. They're trying to entangle him in his talk. <clears throat> the exception clause came in a response to the Pharisees looking for a loophole. Well, Moses provides that loophole, does he? Let me tell you this, there's no loopholes in the scripture. And we shouldn't try to create a loophole just so we can do what we want to do. What we need to do is just obey God. <clears throat> so like many believers today, Ben and I had this conversation in my office about this whole divorce and remarriage issue. And he said, Dad, do you really think that people are purposely rejecting the teachings of the Scripture and twisting the Scripture and trying to make it say what they want it to say, I would say yes and no. Some are definitely doing that. Okay? But then there are some who, this is how they've been taught. They've never looked into it. They've never studied it out. And they just believe what they've been taught. So I believe there's both. Obviously, <clears throat> the Pharisees didn't have pure motives. <clears throat> Jesus was concerned about what? 
the permanency of marriage. He was not going to get caught in their trap. But they were unable to accept his high standard. And that's why they appealed then to the law of Moses. Then why? Then why did Moses give us a law of divorcement? Saying that we could put her away. We're going to look at Moses' law of divorcement. This is what it says. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because she hath found some unclean, he has found some uncleanliness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of the house. Now, does it say anything there about her being sexually immoral? No. It says he finds some uncleanliness in her. Now, we would say, yes, that's immorality. But this is where the interpretation arose out of this passage. You can basically divorce your wife for any reason. If you think she's done something unclean, like burn the toast, divorce her. And when she's departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die which took her to be his wife, the former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. What was this stopping? This was stopping these poor wives from just being shoveled around like a piece of property. Really, the bill of divorcement was a protection for these poor wives who had no protection up to this time. You know, the truth is, even though God has established the permanency of marriage, people are still going to divorce. Yes or no? It's just the nature of man. We're sinners. And so Moses had to put a bill of divorcement out there to regulate this, which was already a practice going on, which basically was nothing more than I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Well, in the heat of a moment in a marriage, you can see what may happen there. Very interesting what else it says here. It says that um, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is what? Defiled. I think that's very interesting. So here, her first husband divorces her. She marries another man. He divorces her or he dies. The, other, the original husband says, I want her back. He can't have her back because she's defiled. Why is she defiled if this whole thing was so right and proper and good? And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. That was the law of Moses. While Jesus acknowledged that Moses put this regulation on divorce, he reminded the Pharisees that such laws were merely concessions because of the hardness of their hearts. They were going to do it anyway, so it had to be regulated. He then returned and went back where? Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis. So here you have the law of God and you have the law of Moses. Which one takes precedent? The law of God, obviously takes precedent there. So Jesus' teaching concerning the exception clause. <clears throat> the exception clause does not establish marital unfaithfulness as grounds for divorce. So what did Jesus mean when he said, except it be for fornication? Now, you got to remember this. Jesus was speaking to who? The Pharisees. Were they well versed in the Old Testament law? Okay. If you will carefully study the Old Testament passages of Scripture, we just read the Bill of Divorcement to you, that relates to marriage, divorce, and remarriage, 
there are two possibilities for the word fornication that Jesus used as ground for divorce. One was what we talked about was the betrothal laws. Here's a couple getting betrothed or becoming engaged. So a couple was considered legally married after that contract of the betrothal was signed by the parents and then the ceremony was conducted. The law of Moses gave permission for divorce if the bride was found unfaithful during that time of their engagement. You can read this, it's quite lengthy, but it's in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Okay? Of course, that reminds us of what? Mary and Joseph. When Joseph understood that Mary was pregnant, that's a hard thing to wrap your mind around. He was minded to do what? Now, were they married? No. And they had not come together sexually. They were betrothed. So did he have a legitimate right to divorce her? According to Moses' law, he did, because what did she commit? Or excuse me, what did he think she committed? He thought she committed fornication, which gave him the, the grounds or the right under the Mosaic law to divorce her. Of course, the angel came to him, and he was a just man, and he understood what was going on there. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when his mother Mary was espoused, betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately or to divorce her. Now here's something that very few people, several understand, the betrothal, the fornication during betrothal. Very few understand this, which really applies to what's going on today. Another use of the word fornication would refer to unlawful marriages that were supposed to be terminated because God's approval was never on these marriages, such as incestuous marriages, and sodomite marriages. These were forbidden by the law, and you can read that there in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 6 and verse 22. What have we done today? Hmm? Just disregarded it. Okay. The word fornication would apply to unfaithfulness during the betrothal period, not marriage. If he was referring to unfaithfulness during marriage, what word would he have used? He would have used the word adultery. Because once you're married, you can't commit fornication anymore, you commit adultery. But it could also refer to incestuous marriages or sodomite marriages. Such marriages were unlawful and were considered invalid. Acts 15 and 1 Corinthians 5 also talks very clearly about incestuous and homosexual marriages. So in order to be consistent with the rest of Scripture, we have to recognize that Christ's use of the exception clause does not refer to marital unfaithfulness. <clears throat> now, here we go. Ten reasons, ten minutes. Can we do it? Probably not. I want to give you ten reasons why I believe the exception clause does not refer to marital unfaithfulness. First of all, it would have been placing Jesus on one side or the other of the rabbinical school of thought. The Pharisees followed two schools of thought when it came to the interpretation of Moses's bill of divorcement. One was the liberal school of Halal, which said you can divorce your wife for any reason. So they took those four verses that we just read, uncleanliness, just something you don't like in her, she's out. Okay, that was the liberal school. Then there was the more uh, conservative school of uh, Shemaiah, 
which permitted divorce only on the grounds of adultery. Though that, that uncleanliness talked about there in the bill of divorcement that Moses wrote, that refers to adultery. And so that's the only reason. So you have the liberal school and you have the conservative school. Question. Did Jesus agree with either one of these schools of thought? No. Jesus said, I'm not taking sides. I'm not taking the liberal side. I'm not taking the conservative side. Instead, he pointed them back to what? Back to the beginning. Back to God's design. He took God's side. And let me say something to you, church. This is always the side we need to come down on. Is God's side. Number two. It would have justified divorce for just a lustful look. It's a picture of David and Bathsheba here. If the exception clause gave grounds for divorce in the case of adultery, what did Jesus teach? If you look at a woman to lust after her, if you're a woman, you look at a man to lust after him, you have what? You have committed adultery already with her in her heart. What man or what woman then does not have grounds to divorce their husband and wife? Yes or no? Come on. There's not one person in this room tonight that would say, you know what, I, never ha- I have never in my life had a lustful thought. Well, if that's what Jesus was teaching were grounds for divorce, then we all have grounds to divorce our husbands and wives. Number three. It's building a whole doctrine on one word. And we've already looked at that. It's building a whole teaching just on one word, and that's the word pornea. By the way, this is where we get the word pornography from. If Jesus was talking about marital unfaithfulness as grounds for divorce, he would have used the word adultery. He would not have used the word fornication. Number four. It would have been contrary to God's law and his original design. Jesus would have been going against what God had established all the way back in Genesis. If Jesus taught that divorce was justified for certain reasons, then he justified something that was contrary to what God had designed. Jesus, however, reaffirmed God's standard of permanency when it came to marriage. Number five, it would have made void the New Testament teachings that husbands are to love their wives as what? Does Christ love us even when we're not faithful to him? Hallelujah. When we are not faithful, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. I'm thankful he doesn't divorce us when we are unfaithful to him. Number six, it would justify a believer losing his salvation because marriage is a beautiful picture of Christ's relationship to his church. So, if you can divorce your husband or your wife, then the picture is ruined. Then Christ can divorce us if we don't remain faithful to him. That's impossible. I thank God that we are eternally secure in our covenant relationship with God through Christ. Number seven, it would put the scriptures in conflict with each other. Teaching one thing one one place and teaching another thing another place. I remember my dad always saying this, if you think there's a contradiction in scripture, it's in your mind, it's not in the scriptures. There's something you're not understanding because the scriptures never, ever, ever contradict themselves. Now, in order to get a divorce, you have to do what? You have to go to court. Do you know the Bible says that a believer should never go to court against another believer? So you know what that tells me? That tells me two believers can never get a divorce. Because they can never go to court in order to dissolve their marriage. They have to take care of that thing in the church. Well, the scriptures are not in conflict with each other. 
Number eight, it negates God's call to suffer for righteousness' sake. Listen, if your husband or your wife commits adultery, is that suffering? That's deep suffering. I, could ne- I, I mean, I could never imagine it. Some of you have been through it. That's deep suffering. But have we been called to suffer for his namesake? We have been. So what we're saying is, I don't want to suffer in this relationship anymore. I'm tired of suffering. Right? That's why people get divorced. I'm tired of suffering. I'm not going to suffer anymore. I've had it. I put my foot down. I'm going to divorce. What does God say? Suffer. That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You stay faithful. Number nine, it would condone taking vengeance. Divorce is really an act of vengeance. It's not an act of obedience. Someone can't say, well, I'm obeying God, so I'm divorcing my wife. No. God never commands us to divorce. Now, in this passage of Scripture, in Malachi, that deals with the divorce issue, notice what it says here. Against whom thou hast dealt, what? Treacherously. And then it's mentioned again. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously, talking about divorce, against the wife of his youth. So divorce is a way of getting revenge. Now, who is the one that says, vengeance is mine? God said, you leave that with me. Don't exercise it yourself. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And then it says there at the end of this passage, be not overcome with evil. Read it with me. But overcome evil with good. That's a hard teaching right there. Amen? Because when someone does evil to us, what do we want to do? Human nature wants to do it right back. And then number 10. And I think this is a powerful one right here. It fails to take into account the astonishment of the disciples. Can someone tell me what was the first response the disciples had when Jesus didn't, he didn't take the liberal view and he did not take the conservative view? Does anybody remember? What did they say? Then it's, not, it's good not to be married. If I can't divorce my wife when she burns the toast, if I can't divorce my wife if she commits adultery, then It's a good thing not to get married if that means you're going to be stuck in this thing. If Jesus was teaching, or if he was agreeing with the school of Shemaiah, would they have responded like this? No, they said, oh, he's taking the conservative position. They wouldn't have been shocked by it. But they are literally shocked by the high standard and the permanency of marriage that Jesus is putting forth here. What was their second response? Does anybody remember? We want to talk to you again about this. Okay. First of all, they're shocked. Second, they call them again and say, okay, go over this again. Are you really saying that the only time divorce can take place is when fornication takes place during betrothal or if it's an incestuous marriage or if it's a sodomite marriage? Is that really what you're teaching, Jesus? So the disciples were aware of the schools of thought and that's why they had the response that they had. If this is the case, of a man be so with his wife, it is good not to be married. And then notice what Jesus said. But he said unto them, would you read this with me? All men cannot receive this saying. And women. 
Is this a hard saying? Is this a hard teaching? It really is. I wasn't sitting there in my office today saying, oh, I just cannot wait to teach this tonight. So many people are going to feel bad. Here's what I'm going to say to you. Unless we come to grips with this and accept Jesus' teaching, here's what happens. We damage all other marriages. So for those of you, and there's several of you here tonight who've been through, been through divorce and remarriage, let me say something to you. You got, a, you got a testimony. You can use your example in a powerful way not to encourage others to divorce, but encourage them to work it out. So here's our time for review. The exception clause does not give grounds for divorce and remarriage. The ten reasons? How'd you like that? Got it? Do you got it? Okay. Next week we will continue. What we're going to look at next week is then what did Paul mean when he said a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases? Doesn't Paul give grounds for divorce? Doesn't God's divorcement of Israel justify divorce? Did you know the Bible said that God divorced Israel? How about this one? What about the innocent party? We'll deal with these ones next week. Let's pray. You have been listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this message was a blessing and encouragement to you. If you would like more messages, visit our website at fbcclarklake.org where all of our messages can be downloaded for free. Also, you can subscribe to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. All of our messages are available for free. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on at Fellowship, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram where you can see what's happening happening at Fellowship Baptist Church. If you'd like to visit us, Fellowship Baptist Church is located at 3200 Reed Road, Clark Lake, Michigan. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you back here again next time.